for over 130 years, McCormick has helped you make mom's lasagna to keep her secret recipe alive. Take over taco night, no matter how chaotic your day is. Conquer the bake sale, even if you get to it last minute. And craft the perfect Sunday brunch when it's not even Sunday. Because with McCormick by your side, it's going to be great. Hey, this is DeRay, and we're going to pause Save the People. In this episode, it's me, DR, Kaya, and Miles talking about all the news that you don't know from the past week. The underreported but important news around race, justice, and equity. And then I sit down with Dwayne Betts, the founder of a first-of-its-kind organization called Freedom Reads. I love this conversation, y'all. That's all I'll say. I hope you'll love it, too. You know, we believe in the end of punishment as a way to hold people accountable. And he really helps us think through the power of reading. His nonprofit supports the efforts of people in prison to transform their lives through increased access to books, writers, and performing artists. Here we go. My advice for this week is to plan the visit. My sister is a principal at an elementary school in Delaware, and I am going to visit her school sometime in the next month to volunteer, and I'm super pumped about it. And I think that, you know, we all live these like wild lives and we're busy and da 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 da. And sometimes we just don't plan the visit, whether the visit is your sister, brother, cousin, parent, plan the visit. So, Teray, I hope you're listening to this. I'm coming to school. Family, welcome to another episode of Pod Save the People. I am Diara Ballinger. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Diara Ballinger. I'm Malzi Johnson. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Feral Rapture. I'm Kaya Henderson on Twitter at Henderson Kaya. This is DeRay at DIY on Twitter. So lots to cover per usual. But what I wanted to start off with is student debt cancellation or Woo-woo! student student debt ten thousand dollars to them to them to them loans um so i don't i just like you know shout out to joe biden in this white house because they got this done and you know they're all you know of course there there's the naysayers or whomever who are like they could have been doing more yada 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 but I think this was a huge thing to get done. I think it's going to relieve so many people financially um, from the constraints of just debt. It's going to allow them, who knows, to invest in homes, to, you know, to buy a car. Who who knows? But it, it is it is financially liberating, ultimately. And the other thing that I really, really, really liked that this White House did and I was very proud of was the snapbacks on Twitter. Oh, yes. Yes. I mean, keep it up, White House digital team. I don't know who you are. That's it. But keep it up. Okay. Do you know who she is? It's a a woman. Who is it? She used to run uh, the state of New Jersey's Twitter account. And she got hired by in the state of New Jersey's Twitter account. used to always snap at people. Megan Coyne. Hey, Meg. Who until recently had run the unusual brash New Jersey state government Twitter account. So DeRay had that right. So Megan, thank you, Miss Megan. Keep it up. Yes, Meg. And it's silly, but it's a big deal. Like, I really feel like it changed, I think, how that account has been interacting with 
the Republicans, it's a big deal and people feel supported and makes the Democrats seem stronger and more hipper. You, you know, all those things are kind of a big deal, even though it's like silly. It's not silly. It is like fight back, Mickey yeah. Fickies. Like it is, we're not going <laughs> to take this land down. <laughs> is oh wait a minute we got a little swag back right like i i mean it is first of all i will say for all of the people who um aren't happy with folks getting their loans forgiven like i'm praying for y'all because when good things happen to other people you should just be thankful then good things will happen to you but like for all of the folks who don't, I, I, I think there are a lot of people who don't understand how the student loan game is actually rigged so that you could basically never pay them off. The increasing prices of college and both community college, state tuition, private tuition, and like the crazy interest rates. I was reading, there's an article in the New Yorker about a lady who took out $29,000 in loans to go to law school in like 1983 or something. And like, she's still not finished paying. She's 91 and she owes $329,000 in student loans for the $29,000 that she took out in 1983. What kind of thing is that? Oh. What kind of thing is that? People are better than me. I was just, you never seen that money bag. I Listen, mean, but I, that's say what I, feel, I feel like I've been paying since 1972 and it just, it'd be the same. <laughs> yeah. It'd be the same every year. It's like, I'm like, is it. Am I just paying interest? Am I paying? What am I paying into this? My favorite response on Twitter was when they announced that, you know, $10,000 was going to be forgiven. Then, like, a lot of people responded, who's going to pay the rest? That was my favorite (laughs) (laughs) response. And I would say if you have been, you know, being an upstanding, responsible person and this is alleviating something for you, like, go do something I don't know any other way to say it. Go do something hood rich. Do something. If you've really been monthly paying these debts off, go go have some fun with that. With that little treat bit of yourself. relief. Yeah, treat yourself. That's a lot of Telfar bags. That's what I would do. <laughs> and what you can do in the world when you just don't have to worry about debt, when you're not paying off this random thing every month that you know you'll never pay down, like we've all said. I mean, that will really free people up to make different choices in the world for themselves and for their families. Also, shout out to the focus on people who got Pell Grants because, you know, it's illegal for the government to uh, to, to do things that are explicitly race-based. So this was like a beautiful way to do something that targeted poor people and people of color in a really explicit way because of the way Pell set up. So shout out, uh, shout out to the Biden administration. Take the victory laps with this and, you know, talk about it. I started to clip it and post it on Instagram, but I was like, that's too petty. Maybe not. But the list of Republican um, Congress people who had PPP loans forgiven and the amount that they had forgiven. And these are the main cats who are saying, you know, you should pay off your loans. Like one dude had $4.3 million in PPP loans forgiven. Say what? And you busting people's chops about people getting $10,000 or $20,000 worth of relief for real educational debt? Come on. Let me tell you that the thing I love the most um, about the PPP loan situation is that all the loans are public. And whoever made that the website that has where you can search if somebody got a loan and it literally has like a tweet here button. So if you thought you were getting these loans in secret and your cousins wouldn't know and the public wouldn't 
all of it is out and the and the click for tweeting is hilarious. Dre, that is totally something that you would have thought of. And if you had any <laughs> any spare time. Let in any know. spare time, not fighting police violence, I feel like that would have been a call. Y'all, let's do this. Uh, oh, <laughs> I am so excited <laughs> because y'all know I am. I just love, 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 love Solange Knowles. You know, I could write a. I want to be commissioned to write a book on Solange Knowles one day because I just feel like nobody has really talked about the aesthetic intervention as the sonic and aesthetic intervention that her work has been doing. And I feel like she's such a a path maker. She's such a blueprint. And it's just so, every single move is to me more interesting than the last one. This newest move is she is writing an original score for the New York City Ballet. She will be the first Black woman to do so. She's doing it for Fashion Week. The rumors are it's about Sarah Jessica Parker, but we're going to pretend that's not true. Even if... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Even if you see Sarah Jessica Parker there, just pretend that it's not her. Pretend it's like Lynn Whitfield. But we, <laughs> but we are super excited that Solange is getting this opportunity. And I think that because of what's happening with streaming, because of what's happening with um, people not being able to keep anything in their hands when people are on stage, I think we're c- kind of coming to this new frontier where there are there has to be new ways where artists, Black artists, are able to express themselves and are able to get money and get notoriety and build their legacies. And I think that she's such um, an example of the possibilities that aren't just what we normally see. And it's just so super duper exciting to see her um, do this. Um, I'm also really interested in how, because she has such a cool currency amongst so many, you know, people, specifically um, Black youth. I'm wondering how this might influence what other people want to do and what other people want to um, go uh, go and discover and create for. And um, both DR and Kaya before have, like, brought up, you know, operas and plays and all these other ways that um, Black folks as of late have been infiltrating these stereotypically white spaces and recreating them. And I feel like this is, like, an extension of that and, a, and, a, and another iteration of that. And I was just excited to bring this to the podcast. I love her. She's so interesting. She's so cool. She has a voice like, you know, a Black exploitation cherub angel. And <laughs> I, <laughs> and she could do no wrong. They, if your last name is Knowles, I, I don't got I don't gotten much critique for you after a while, child. I love it. I love it. What are you? I will say um, this made me think about the conversation that people have been having around um, gymnastics and like what what's going to happen as black boys like start to actually go to gymnastics and will dominate in the sport. Da da da. And I think about this as like there are going to be so many black people who have never been to a ballet, wouldn't go to a ballet, couldn't drag them to a ballet, won't watch a video of a ballet. But, like, they will be in there, bells and whistles on, with Solange, baby. It'll be the first ballet, and it'll completely shape the way you think about what is possible with ballet. And that is what I'm super excited about, to see Solange do this. And you know she'll do it in, like, her own special way. It'll be a thing no matter what happens, which is really cool. And it's just another, like, Black people come in, and I think that she will, like, redefine a moment. And that is what Black people do. And I'm, like, super pumped about that. Me too. I, I mean, 
One of the things that I love about Solange is she has created her own whole image persona, like totally outside of her sister's shadow, like literally is like living free, doing like, you know, I'm big on black freedom and I feel like she is one of the best examples of black freedom. Why can't I score a freaking ballet? Why not? Let me do it. Let me give it a shot. I love it. I wish we all had that sense of possibility. Um, and didn't have it beaten out of us on a day-to-day basis. But y'all better run and get these tickets because they're only $38. They are available right now on a New York City ballet website. And you know all your cousins is going. And they're going to get their tickets and you're going to be locked out. So you might as well go do it now. Um, I'm excited for the same reasons that you are, DeRay. I think this is going to open ballet to... I mean, first of all, there are loads of... Didn't we do a thing about black ballerinas at some point on the pod a while ago? Like, there are there are lots of... There's lots of black talent in dance, even in places um, that have remained white, like ballet. Shout out to Misty Copeland, the GOAT. Um, but, like, this is just going to continue to kick the door down. And, you know, when we get into these spaces, we totally transform them. Like we create ballet, like people have never thought about ballet before and I'm here for it all. So shout out to Solange, shout out to all my little cousins who are going to the ballet this season. Let's do it. So I had the good fortune of uh, seeing Solange during my law school days at Thurgood Marshall School of Law at Texas Southern University. So we see Solange around hanging out sometimes in the club, which was always fantastic. And so I, and this is like from like 2005. So this is a long time ago. Um, And she just had such a vibe and such an energy. And I'm just so not surprised at all to see what, what her trajectory has been and always just feel so held and seen by her. And I feel like even in a seat at the table, my favorite part, of a seat at the table is the master P part because I just, I still get goosebumps. You know what I mean? Just like talking about black liberation, you know, black autonomy. We not about to let these white people take control or ownership over our music and our art and our culture. So yeah, she is just such like a transcendent, wonderful inspirational being and so excited to see this so excited is what more comes from this um the other thing is did y'all know cranes in the sky is about like construction cranes and not birds think about where that. Have you think, been? On that. Where think, have you on, think on welcome, that think on that think on think on that think on that y'all it, it it was the it was the metal clouds. It was it was the the metal clouds. You know you know we all we all we all get to glory on our own time. Just <laughs> 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 to wrap it up, the last thing I was gonna, I was gonna say is, and I also hope that this is the opening of because I know she's doing the score now. It makes me excited because I know that she does choreography and I know that. Um, there's just I just hope that this is the beginning of an ongoing maybe relationship to slowly but surely, you know, 
push Sarah Jessica Parker's name out of there. You know, get an all black ballet. You know, Missy bring Missy Copeland in here. You know what I mean? I'm just I'm hoping that this is the beginning of an ongoing relationship that, and it gets more and more solidified as it progresses. You know, I, I shout out to SJP. It's just so a black you, people what thing. What you're saying is you don't want it to be like the episode of Sex in the City where they had Blair Underwood on. Oh jeez! I, 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 I wanted to. Yes, I don't. Yes, exactly, exactly. No, no, no points. No, don't just mm. use me and in, in, in dip. I want it to be an ongoing thing. But you know, relationship. Mm. Not a jump off. Not a jump off. No, 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 no. We want an ongoing relationship. My news is <laughs> not about ongoing relationships. So maybe it is. Um, my news this week is about the impending affirmative action case that is going to be heard by the Supreme Court on August the 31st. Um, there is a, um, a lawsuit that has been filed um, by... Um, students for fair admissions that challenged the race conscious methods that Harvard and the University of North Carolina used to pick freshman classes. Basically, they are arguing that um, any kind of race-based consideration should be eliminated from admissions processes. And we have some historical data to uh, refer to as that case comes to pass. 15, uh, more than 15 years ago, um, Two of the country's top university systems, University of California and the University of Michigan, um, they were forced to stop using affirmative action in admissions um, because of a similar type of lawsuit. And um, according to the New York Times, both of the systems have tried to build racially diverse classes through outreach, through scholarships, through a bunch of investments well into the hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, but these efforts have fallen abysmally short. In fact, we are worse off than we were 15 or 20 years ago, even though, for example, the University of California system says it spent more than a half a billion dollars since 2004 to try to increase diversity. Um, let me tell you what the numbers look like. In 2021, the entering freshman class at the University of California, Berkeley, had 258 black students and 27 Native American students out of a class of 6,931 young what? people. Are you kidding me? And that same year, black enrollment at Michigan's flagship campus in Ann Arbor was 4%, only 4%, even as the university maintained a special admissions office in Detroit to recruit black students. Basically, we are worse off, far worse off, um, since the, the ban on using race-based um, admissions tactics has come along um, in Oklahoma, which has also banned race-based uh, admission stuff. And their freshman class in 2020 was 61% white, 12% Hispanic, and 3.7% black, 2.1% American Indian. And 3.7% black, but black people make up 7.8% of the state's population. So this is a, an ongoing thing. Um, a bunch of universities, something like 15 universities, have just filed an amicus brief with the court saying why they need to keep race-based admissions 
um, strategies in place. Um, they talk about the diversity of perspective in the educational process. And basically, they're like, look, we can't maintain diverse classes if we don't consider the whole student. And that's the real headline from where I sit. It is reduce students to a test score or to a GPA. And we all know that there are lots of issues with um, people of color and low-income people around testing, around grade inflation, around all kinds of stuff. And basically, you're not giving these folks a fair shot. Um, I think it is, you know, this what what happens on October 31st or whenever they rule on this affirmative action thing, I think has the uh, potential to literally break higher education um, because people are opting out. We just talked about the student loan um, debt crisis, but these kids of color are like, I'm not going to the University of Michigan. I'm going to Howard because at least I don't have to fight around discriminatory actions. I don't feel comfortable in these all white environments that are increasingly becoming whiter and whiter. And so I think that, um, you know, people are like, why am I going to college? What is, how, why am I taking on all this debt? Why am I plunging myself into an environment? a hostile environment where people don't want me and people don't want to support my growth and development. And already college admissions, college numbers are down precipitously. And I think um, this may be the thing that cracks open higher education and forces us to look for some alternative models. Kai, I think what's interesting about this um, is it's almost like a return to separate but but equal. It's like, that's exactly right. The public schools are going to be less and less diverse. And they're like, you were talking about the young woman that went to Howard there. There's more investment. Now we've seen this, like particularly since 2020, more investment in HBCUs and just in a wide range of HBCUs, right? Like outside of Spelman, Morehouse, Howard, Morgan, Morgan state, there's like investment going everywhere. Um, And so I, it, it is going to be interesting to see how, how this all shakes out, because I think a lot of stu- a lot of students are just making that decision. Right. Like, why would I go to a school where I'm not going to be supported and I'm not going to be seen? And my my baby brother, who's a golfer, um, was being recruited by College of Charleston and he decided on Morehouse because who was what who was that Duray that was was shot in the back of a bunch of times. Remember that he was like running. Oh, yeah. Walter South Carolina. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. In South Carolina. And my brother was like, Nope, I'm going to Morehouse. So, you know, I think th- those, those decisions are like, <laughs> I mean, I can't believe our kids are having to make decisions like that, but, but, but they are. Um, and so, yeah, I just, I just see this as something that's like almost like, uh, I'm a lawyer and I can't remember, not de facto, just, uh, uh, separation what's the other one de jour yes <laughs> i don't even know what de jour means but i knew that so, Smart. a plus a how plus all, plus how all i know is ipso facto <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll bust a good ipso facto every time i need to close the argument <laughs> yeah dear i was thinking the same thing um diara and then also um i remember just being kind of like in real time educated by um, Kaya and DeRay about how um, it's their studies about how 
Black children learn better when they're being taught by Black people in different environments. So it makes sense that once you have the autonomy to choose those things, um, you would choose to go to go Black. That makes a lot of sense to me. So what doesn't make a lot of sense is those numbers for me. And now I'm just saying what I feel. And the spirit of Whitney Houston has come over me. And I want to see receipts about the 500 million. I want to see how you come up with those figures and those percentages. And you got that much money to go and make something a little bit more black or more diverse. And y'all still coming out with those numbers. I, I want to see what where that money went to and, and how and how it was spread. And um something, some something. Some, yeah, that's a lot of money to come out with 3% yeah. in, and, and have four, you said 400 students and there's six that, like, that's that's a lot of money um, to to fail that much. And yeah, we, we can't forgive that loan. We need to know what's going on. We need to look that up. <laughs> I'll say two things really stuck out to me. The first is, um, it's reminded that the Republicans are fighting on every front. They, it's like no stone unturned. They That's are, right. it's like, it's public schools, it's colleges and universities, it's abortion, like it's all the things. And this is why when we joked about the Twitter account, it matters is that you got to fight back. Like you will lo- you will certainly lose if you don't fight. The only way to win is to at least do something. And this is like one of those things where like, you know, the, the Supreme Court's not on our side. Let's see what happens. And also let's see if, you know, universities, colleges come up with the workaround that like 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 Biden did with the workaround with Pell. We shouldn't have to do that, but like let's see if if something gives me will be interesting to see what happens if we have to live through this time where like race just cannot be a factor. I mean, that's just a wild thing, given that race was a factor in every single thing to send this bad boy up, which we know and talk about all the time. The second thing is um loans and this have been a really good reminder this week of how when people are like they don't do politics it's like you know and we jokingly always say politics is doing you Uh, we need like another way to say that to people but it's like the people who think that like they're just not going to participate whatever participate looks like voting because it doesn't matter it's like it really is in fact it's like your life right it's like your kid it might be really hard for them to go to college. You might have just gotten your loans. Like these are material things that matter to you that we need you to, we need to figure out how to get you involved in a way that speaks to your experience. And that's what this reminds me of. Cause I will tell you as clued in as I am, if you hadn't picked us for the news, I would have been talking about the affirmative action thing. Cause it just wasn't on my radar. Also embarrassingly, I looked it up and it is de facto, not de jure. De facto is... <sighs> When it happens in effect, de jure is by law. So, well, ipso facto. State of Maryland, I hope you didn't hear that to take my bar lessons. <laughs> I paid my dues. I was going to say, you better ask them people for some of your money back. I've been practicing law in a long time. <laughs> so sad. Don't go anywhere. More politics than people's coming. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, 
Wondery's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states and Canada where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, the Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery+. Plus. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Now, what's the first thing that you'd do if you had a ton of extra time in a day? Maybe I'd take a nap, go for a run, talk to some friends. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But the question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? Now, the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and to make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you help you process the world around you, help you think through the most important things, how you spend your time, where you spend your energy, especially your emotional energy. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash people. Packages by Expedia. You were made to be rechargeable. We were made to package flights, hotels, and hammocks for less. Expedia, made to travel. Um, Okay. My news, let me just preface this. I am trying to will myself to get excited and to get involved and to get engaged around these midterm elections, mostly out of fear that we're going to lose them. And so I feel like we've kind, we're kind of on a wave, even though in the last few years, our waves have had some quite up and downs, but I feel like we're on a good wave. You know, the, the Biden administration came through with this loan forgiveness. Um, and we've been seeing really good results in special elections. You know, we saw that in Kansas. We and, and there were some elections that came out our way too in New York and Florida. So NPR did a really amazing, just quick and dirty on four things that have come out of the most recent primaries and special elections. And so I just wanted to raise that up and get y'all support in the continuing investment and engagement in these elections because I have a lot of PTSD around them for obvious reasons. So the four things that we've learned since basic, since June, 2022 is the abortion rights has changed the landscape, right? So in upstate New York, we saw that this, so in upstate New York, there was an election. It's like, it's, it's a swing district. So went for Obama, went for Trump, then went for Biden, but it's always just like super, super close. But we came out in that special election, right? So um, now Congressman Ryan won it by about two, two points, right? 
um, which is wild, which is wild. So that's one thing. So the, the you know, I, 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 I don't know how to balance it. Like losing abortion rights is now helping us with elections. But I, I mean, that's a, a sad equation. Um, the second thing is, um, and this this is one that's a little bit controversial, but it's the, the title of this kind of second thing to know is that there's no time like the present for establishment Democrats who still mostly have the advantage. And so the argument here is like in, in Florida, we saw Charlie Chris, who was like commission, ag- agriculture commi- commissioner yes. or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other. Nikki Fried. Nikki, Nikki Fried. Fried. There, she, there, there she is. There she is. Um came out there and then in New York Sean Patrick Maloney defeated Alessandra Biaggi and uh, Alessandra had the the backing of um, AOC so I think the argument here is like the more progressive leaning for some the more you know on the primary side the the more establishment Democrats going to do well the anomaly to that is Maxwell Frost I didn't even know about Maxwell Frost y'all so Maxwell oh, yeah, Frost, twenty-five-year-old, yes, won the primary in Florida. So get down, Maxwell Frost. We'll get down really into your politics. I got to look you up a little bit more, but <laughs> it is it is an accomplishment nonetheless. So that's been interesting too, right? Like these big ideological differences for like with, within the Democratic establishment, um, how how that's going to play out in the midterms, and so it's. I don't I think it's still a little bit hard to tell on our side, right? And I think on the on the on the right, it's also a little bit of mixed results too, right? So like some of the folks that are like super pro Trump and say crazy things and are super racist, like some of those folks are losing, right? So I think that that's a that's a good sign. Like there's one candidate in here, Laura Loomer. So she has posted conspiracy theories about COVID-19 vaccines. She called herself a proud Islamophobe and pro-white nationalist. Um, she lost by 20 points in, in her uh, general election. Thank goodness. Get it together. Well, the best thing about Loomer, did you see that Loomer, uh, she would not concede, concede defeat. She said, the congressional seat is mine for the taking, and I will be the congresswoman from Florida's 11th district. I actually am the congresswoman in Florida's 11th district, and everyone knows it. Oh, okay. Laura. Daughter of Trump. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what I, I mean? What I think that the, the point of all of this, right, is there's, there is a bridge too far. And I think the Republicans feel like they have won on all of these issues. And we've all known, all of the polling has shown that America is not actually with them on a lot of these far-right issues. And so you see things like Kansas happening, right, where the abortion thing gets completely pushed back in a Republican state because people are like, yeah, sorry, we're not having that. And so I think what the NPR article did for me was remind us that there are still moderate people out mm-hmm. here who That's right. who are voting in the midterms and the media cycle elevates all of the extremes, right? Whether it's extreme left or extreme right. But there is a middle that is active that when you roll back too many of their rights will get up and push back. And I think that is the hope that the Democratic Party has at this point, that the Republicans have done are doing a little too much right now. And I think they are not keeping pace with 
where America is. In fact, you know, Mitch McConnell is now complaining about the quality of the candidates coming out of these Republican races because, like, even he knows you can't put all of these people in his position. <laughs> Ooh, Kai Anderson. Um, yeah, and so I, I think, I think, yeah, that's all I got to say before I say something <laughs> but crazy. I think, and I think that applies, too, to just something that I had not thought about is that DeSantis has to win this gubernatorial election to go on to win, like to go, to go on to run for president. He and, sure does. And if and if Charlie Chris can give him any sort of run for his money, that would just make me so happy, just so happy. And did you see what Charlie Chris chose as his uh, as his run? The head of the teachers union. Well, I, didn't get that. I didn't get a moment where everybody's talking about education in Florida because of don't case don't say gay and all that other stuff. I think that that actually might be a smart decision. I need to do some research on this lady because, you know, (laughs) 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 because I, I think that like one of the things that I think is really interesting about Charlie Crist is he used to be a Republican and then he turned Democrat. And so, and so I think, you know, we have to watch it on both sides. You can't be too far X or too far Y. And so I think what he offers to a moderate Republican is, ah, he may be a Democrat, but he's really a Republican and I can vote for him and whatever, whatever, right? And we need those swing voters. But, you know, if the teachers union lady is too progressive, then that might kill his moderate positioning. And Mm. so I think, I mean... He's not, I'm not worried about Charlie Crist getting Democrats in Florida. I'm worried about the number of Republicans that he's going to need to to pull in order to unseat DeSantis. And that is the thing. Like all of us who want to be active in elections and whatnot, go to Florida, go to Florida, knock on doors, pay your money, do your things. Like this is literally probably one of the most important races for the future of our country. Oh my soul. Right. Mm. And the other race out of Florida is uh, Marco Rubio, who you called whatever you called Marco and Van Demings yeah yeah but that's an interesting one too I think to Kaya's point is like you know Val Demings former Orlando police chief you know doesn't support defunding the police like I just think it's going to be interesting to see how these things shake out and, and even on the democratic side like what what some of the ideologies like what they translate into in terms of policy Rubio losing would be I mean, the best. Amazing. The best. Amazing. So here's, here's what I'll say is that it's a reminder, and I think the right does this way better than the left, is that most people are single-issue voters. They might, not, they might not even know their issue until you tell them, but they can, like, hold one thing. I think sometimes we give people, like, crime becomes 50 million. Things. Like, it just yeah, it becomes right. too much. And it's like, when I talk to my aunt, she got a lot going on. She, she is not doing 50 issues in her head, but you give her one or two because she has a lot, like, she is, kids that like she doesn't have the luxury of like watching him at cbc all day and trying you know and i think that abortion is you think about kentucky abortion was the issue it was just it it was like either you are for women or you're not and like very black and white and i think sometimes we don't play in the black and white for a lot of reasons like you know the left loves the nuance and we understand the complicated but sometimes people really do just need a like this or that and i'm excited to see us do that it is said that losing the right to have an abortion is the thing that has become the issue for people because you shouldn't have to lose your rights for there to be an issue. But 
Uh, but it's good. And I'm excited about um, the, the Gen Zer in Congress. You know, here's the thing. Even if this, and I, none of us really know him. We've only seen interviews. How old is he? 25. 25. He can't be worse than any of the wild people on the other side. Same so, you know, that. literally, like he is sane, has some ideas, like knows what working families actually believe in. Like that is in and of itself a win because the old people have, I mean, an old, old, like the 70 plus, they've held it down for entirely too long. You know, the other thing about Maxwell is that he is Cuban. So I think it's also fascinating to see this new generation of Cubans and how their political ideologies are changing. So I think that's a very, very good sign. Um. My news about Torrance, California. So in uh, in Torrance, in 2021, the LA Times released a trove of racist and discriminatory text messages that were sent by Torrance police officers. And in those text messages, they were they shared images of a black man who had been lynched, and they joked, "quote that he was hanging with the homies." There was another text uh, that said a cop should break a taillight on a black man's car and shoot him if he was caught having an affair with one of the officer's girlfriends. And the messages also showed officers joking about, quote, gassing Jewish people and assaulting queer people. Uh, And then in April 2022, a court filing showed that between 2018 and 2020, Torrance police officers had used discriminatory language in hundreds of text messages, including slurs like calling Black people savages and, quote, monkeys. Uh, Another Torrance officer said, and I quote, his son will grow up without a father now. Uh, and the, it continued that standard by any African-American family to be absent a father, he'll be fine. Uh, and more recently, the LA Times has reported just last week that new court documents show a new batch of text messages that got released, one of which was, was going to tell you all those inward family members are all pissed off in front of the station. This is about Black people who are gathered because the police have just killed somebody. And officers also joked about hosting a gun cleaning party if the identities of the cops who shot the Black men become public. I say this because when we talk about the police, you know, people always try and tell us it's like the good man with the gun, just trying to get home, like just trying to, and it's like, just listen to what they said. Like in their own words, I ain't got to sugarcoat it. I don't have to wrap it up. Just in their own words. So when we talk about a world beyond policing, we're also talking about a world beyond this culture that like you can't convince anybody that the people who wrote that are interested in justice, equity, safety. Like there's no sell to that. It, it just doesn't land. So I wanted to bring it because so often we talk about the actions of the police, which we should. We don't often get a glance into the mindset outside of these like individual sort of moments. And the text messages, I think, are one of the best proof points of like the mindset is corrupt, which is why we would say we have to have something that is not this. Yeah, I this... This, it just makes me weary, right? Because one, surprise, not at all, right? And, you know, three police officers just beat a white man in Alabama, Alabama, right? I mean, and if you saw the video, it was horrible. And like, it just keeps on going. We talked about Walter Scott, which was now years ago. Like, it just, it's par for the course. And Like, literally, there is no accountability. There is no, and we have the evidence, right? We have the evidence that the system, like the people who operate in this culture, the culture is rotten to the core. It's not one bad apple or two bad apples. The whole thing is rotten. 
And we are not talking at all about ways to break this thing apart and to create something different. And so this just made me like, you know, my soul is weary about police brutality and stuff. And like, I don't, I just don't know who we are as a people where we continue to get evidence upon evidence, body cams, recordings, text messages, evidence upon evidence upon evidence that this thing is broken irretrievably. And we're like, uh, I, I don't I don't know what to do with that. Yeah, no, I think that you're right, Kaya. And then also I think that when I think about the culture of just, like, police and how we try to, like, say, or at least I try to say, like, oh, it's like a white supremacist culture. I think that these text messages were such a good example of, like, the culture because, like, there's, like, a brotherhood. There's a there's a um, humor in it. It's not just, like, these kind of, like, political um, or social political, like, uh, ideas, like, just kind of being spat in. It's like, it's a game and it's and it's a culture and like, how do you reverse that? And it also is proof that it's a culture and the result is often the deaths or the brutalities of Black folks because there are Black people who are police officers and we just don't have text messages of this going on. And we just don't see them, you know, for Black police officers who go and find themselves a white kid. We just don't have, it's just, there's obviously a, a, an access card in order to be a police officer, and it's obviously white supremacy. And the only thing I think that can really happen is the people who do have ideas around what does abolition look like? What does um, uh, any of these kind of more leftist extreme things look like? Um, I think that, like, yeah, our our only option is to kind of shout that to the mountaintops and shout those ideas to the mountaintops. So when we have these type of moments happen, there's this tangible thing to plug into, you know, and say, well, let's this is let's focus on this and creating this. I feel like that's where the helplessness comes from. So we don't really have so many people saying like what does the alternative look like as much anymore? I mean, I just looked up what it what the requirements are to become a police officer in Torrance, California. Must be 21 years of age, must be a U.S. citizen or a filed application for citizenship, must possess or maintain a valid driver's license, and must possess a high school diploma or GED. It is harder to rent a car. <laughs> like, for real. So I think, yes, there's this whole conversation and current around culture and white supremacy, but it's also just like... What is their actual professional educational experience, their their skills around, you know, problem solving, analytical thinking, all the things that you would need, I would think, to have people's lives in your hand, to carry a, a gun, to, you know, all those things. And I agree. I agree with you. I do think there should be, but I I just think that you could be 15, 16 and not be somebody who is a raging white supremacist. Like those text, those text messages, those text messages give me like give way of like that. That's something that you could be really sophisticated and really educated and, and be an Ivy League graduate. And if you're steeped in that culture, that will still show up, you know? But I just feel like part of the requirement should be a lie detector test. And in the lie detector test, <laughs> yeah. have you ever used the N word? Are you racist? <laughs> It's so fact. So singing in the Ja Rule song, but have you Visual. ever used? The... Yeah. 
ipso facto du jour de fact. <laughs> Here's your Mickey D's application. Go on. Yes, he- <laughs> <laughs> you will not be carrying a gun. No, I hear, I hear that reaction. I just think that sometimes, just like when I think about just uh, educate the access of education, poverty, and I. I and I think that specifically on the right, so much of um, it has uh, so much of this white supremacist culture has been blamed on um, the impoverished, the jobless, the 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 young, and all these other things. And I'm like, that's not a good a good excuse. And I and I get how even like we can arrive at those points, but that's some that those text messages were just deeply disturbing. And I'm like, there's not a college that washes that out of you that's like a spiritual moral corruption yeah generational yeah Yeah. oh thanks for bringing us that news deray right (laughs) you know somebody we it was light and we it was good and i was like let me just make sure one of us just drops a little just to remind her that we got work to do y'all so i'm gonna stay my ass at the ballet chair don't go anywhere more politics the people's coming It's 2024. We're facing another presidential election with huge stakes. You want to help. You don't know where your money will actually make a difference or how to figure that out. Ensure you love to take an edible and not think about it, but you can't because you do care. Let Vote Save America make it easy for you with their new anxiety relief program. Here's how it works. You set up a monthly recurring donation at the level that feels right for you, and Vote Save America will send 100% of it to the grassroots organizations and down-ballot races that need it most. Then at the end of the month, they'll tell you where your dollars went. That's it. Set it and forget it. Vote Save America has already raised $52,000 in monthly recurring donations. Love it. That's great. From over 1,000 amazing sustaining donors who've signed up and trusted Vote Save America to make their dollar go further. But we still have a long way to go and Vote Save America needs your help to get there. Sign up at votesaveamerica.com enjoy your edible <laughs> legal disclaimer paid for by vote save america vote save not authorized by any candidate or candidates committee the crooked store's latest collection has a clear message for anyone trying to take away abortion rights don't the no trespassing collection features four different designs each inspired by a different state where abortion is under attack there's stay out of my swamp for florida stay out of my hole for arizona Stay out of my prickly pear for Texas and stay out of my strip for Nevada. But obviously, I'll be wearing these no matter where I am. A portion of proceeds from the collection will go to Vote Save America's F-Bands, the Fight Back Fund, which currently is supporting abortion rights organizations across Arizona, Nevada, and Florida. Head to cricket.com slash store to shop. This week, we welcome activist and 2021 MacArthur Genius Fellow, Dwayne Betts, to talk about his nonprofit organization called Freedom Reads. Working with prison reform advocates, state and federal lawmakers, prison wardens, and correction officers, the organization works with a multitude of stakeholders to improve the lives of incarcerated people and provide them with opportunities for education and advancement while in prison. They do this by installing their uniquely designed freedom libraries into prisons nationwide that have a curated selection of 500 books. And get this, these libraries are built within the housing units. We talked about the transformative power of reading and literature. We talked about a lot of things. Here we go. Dwayne Betts, thanks so much for joining us today on Pod Save the People. Yeah, man, it's my pleasure to be here. I've known your work for a long time. I'm excited that we finally got you on the pod. 
Uh, and let's just start with your story. How did you, you've had a, a long journey, a, a lot of things going on. I, I want to know about law school. I want to know about all of it. But how did you get to this work? What was your journey to the work of Freedom Reads, but also the work of uh, how do we undo the carceral system? Yeah, you know, it's one of those things, man, where, where you tell a story enough that the story becomes you. And I've accepted that, but I think the struggle with it is the fact that um, the most honest way to begin the story is with me carjacking a man at a at a mall in, in Virginia when I was 16 years old, uh, December 7th, 1996. And uh, I remember, you know, getting locked up and having to call my mom and how do you tell your mother you're in jail? And you fumble, you fumble with it, but it's like a man drowning and, and you want to pretend that you're not drowning. But once you start swallowing water, you, you, you can't escape it anymore. And you, you figure out how to call for help or die. And, um, and that's where it starts, you know, and I, I get arrested and I plead guilty, 16 years old, carjacking Curry's life in Virginia. Um, my guilty plea didn't guarantee a sentence. It just guaranteed me a chance to stand before the judge and appear to have accepted guilt and responsibility. Judge sentenced me to nine years in prison. I was 125 pounds. I hadn't won a fight since the second grade. And um, judge sent me to nine years and you got to be somebody other than a black man in jail. So I I told myself I would be a, a writer and I was lucky because I wasn't around anybody who could try to challenge me and, and discourage me. And I didn't even say it out loud anyway. And so I decided to be a writer, not knowing what that would mean. And then a couple of years later, I was in solitary confinement. You know, books were contraband, but the guys inside created an underground library. And, and the rule was simple. You ask for a book and you say what sell you in and somebody slides you a book. They don't know your name. You don't know their name. They just give you a book if they got one. And somebody slid me Dudley Randall's The Black Poets. And, and I read Sonia Sanchez and Lucille Clifton, Langston Hughes, Robert Hayden, Sterling Plump. Sterling Brown, and I read I read uh, Etheridge Knight, and, and Knight had done time in prison, and he was writing poems about prison. And the thing that really changed it for me uh, was that he had these poems, one poem in particular called For Freckle Face Gerald, and it was about a 16-year-old kid. He said, 16 years hadn't done a good job on his voice. He said, uh, with his precise speech and innocent grin, he couldn't quite win the trust or the fist of the young black cats around him. And I'm in this, this cell in a hole and I'm reading these, these words and, and this kid, you know, he ended up getting raped in prison. And, um, and I was like, woe is me. Yeah, I can't believe they sent me to prison at 16. I'm around all of these grown ass men. I'm 125 pounds. I am deficient of everything that you need to survive here. And I read this poem, and one, I recognize that a poetry could contain a history of suffering. It could be a social critique, because Knight had gotten locked up in the 60s. So that meant that they had 16-year-olds in prison in the 60s, right? And so so suddenly I'm reading this poem, and I'm no longer so self-centered. And also, I'm reading this poem, and I realize that, that people love me. You know, I ain't have no precise speech and no innocent grin. You know, I came from where I came from. I, I was able to move in the world the way I moved in the world. And even in prison, um, um, people, people love me. And so, 
So that poem made me a poet, um, but that poem also made me more aware of everything I had that some other folks didn't have. And that just put me on a trajectory for everything that I've done um, in my life from becoming something of a scholar um, while I was in prison to becoming something of an educator while I was in prison and then ultimately you know, end up in law school and, and found Freedom Reads because what Freedom Reads is supposed to be um, is a book slid under the cell doors of others. It is me building these libraries and prisons so that people have access to books in a way that um, can transform their lives. Well, I didn't, I never heard you tell your story like that. So thank you. Thank you for sharing that with us. I, I want to know about literacy uh, on the inside that, you know, I, I was a teacher. I worked in a couple school systems and helped lead the human capital work. And a constant refrain that comes up with our older students is that we just didn't do a very good job of teaching people how to read. That like there are a generation of Black kids that, you know, they get to eighth grade, ninth grade, tenth grade. And like, we just didn't do a great job of teaching them how to read the basics, phonics or whole language, whatever you were taught. Was that your experience? And how do we combat teaching older, you know, not first, second, third graders uh, literacy? Yeah, it's actually interesting because um, one of the things about Freedom Reads that I'm trying to do is is create opportunities for these literacy gaps to become apparent. You know, what happens is if you are in a prison and you're a reader, then you find books and you gravitate towards books. Or you go to school and you gravitate towards education. But what about the people who can't? And so one of the things about building these freedom libraries is to create more opportunities to interact with folks and have folks interact with each other so that you could raise the literacy rates. But I was a, I was a GED instructor for a number of years. And so um, that was like my job inside. And so I, I, I did, you know, struggle to teach some folks how to read, struggle to teach some folks mathematics. But the truth is, if you don't know, right, then you make yourself invisible. You know, it's all kinds of ways to be in the world and it's all kinds of ways to be in prison and to just like hide your deficiencies. And so I do think that they say the average reading level in prison is fourth grade reading level, but that's just based on some of those assessments that they do when you first come in based on looking at what your education level is before you get locked up. I mean, I actually think that we don't have a lot of good ways of capturing the people who don't volunteer to reveal like their inability to read. And that's what I found, you know, in my own life and in my own time. That makes sense. I taught sixth grade math in East New York, Brooklyn, and I'll never forget, we had just gotten a seventh grader, great kid. And his mom was like, I read to him every night. And I'll never forget his first ELA class because it was really clear that he was fluent. Like he could look at words and repeat them back to you, but his comprehension was at a second grade. Like he didn't know what it meant, but he could like say the word and repeat it, you know, and we had to get him up to speed that year. And I think about him in seventh grade and how, you know, we were lucky, like we had a great teacher and like, she was really amazing, but we certainly didn't have the support to do that for a whole lot of kids, you know? Well, I mean, I, I taught, so when I came home, you know, my first job was teaching poetry. And what happens is, is, is teaching poetry, it, it reveals literacy in ways that, that other things might not, because people want to have a voice. And, and I was young and I was charismatic sometimes, and I would push these kids to write. And I remember like this kid that was like 12, 13, get, I'm like, finally get him to write. You know, he was a loud kid in the classroom. He liked the tough kid. I'm like, yo, look, man, we can write about whatever you want. And I had got his friends to write. Right. And what happens is I get him to write. And when he starts writing, I realize, oh, man, this kid can't read that well. He can't spell that well. And I work with him, but it was just me. And when you work with one student in the classroom and 22 other students want your attention, 
the fact that you spend an uh, inordinate amount of time with that one kid means that everybody else feels like it's something wrong with that one kid. And so then he's like, I don't know if I want to do this. And I remember running into him like three, four years later after my first book came out. As a 16-year-old, he still had the shell of a 12-year-old in him. And he slipped and called me Mr. Dwayne. I was at a juvenile detention center. And I was like, hold up. Yo, do you got a brother that goes to heart? And mind you, this was one of my first jobs out of prison. And so the years were running into each other. And I didn't realize that this kid was from four years ago. And he was like, nah, I'm my only child, but I went to heart. And I looked at him. I mean, I, I used to love this kid. And I remember one day I was like, look, if I beat you in basketball with my Tims on, you got to do your homework for a week. And he was like, I'm going to punish you, dude. It's like, you old. I was like, this kid is a fool. I weighed like 200 pounds. <laughs> I, I straight barked him. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and so I knew the kid, right? And, and he was like, nah, I went to heart. And I broke my heart. And I realized, like, if you don't know what a metaphor is, and you're 16, your odds of ending up in a jail cell, I just feel like they increase dramatically if you're a black boy that doesn't know what a metaphor is, and you're 16 years old. And so, so yeah, I think my own experience revealed how important it is. But- it's just hard, though. And it's hard to identify who needs support on that reading level inside because you got to create more opportunities for people to recognize that the storytelling and the reading and the literacy matters. How did you get to Freedom Reads? What was the moment? Was there like a thing or a conversation and you were like, OK, this is the this is like the way that I'm going to do this work in the world? I was fortunate. Somebody asked me, what would you do if, if, if you didn't have any constraints on your dreams? on what you thought was possible. And I said, I would put millions of books in the prisons because we put millions of people in the prisons. And the way I thought about it is, um, as you know, when you, when you got a cup of water and you drop the ice cubes in, it's at some point that you put so many ice cubes in that the water overflows. Well, if the books are the ice cubes and the water are the people, if you put enough books into the prison, then people will begin to flow out of the prison. And so this person, she asked, um, how would you do this? And so in real time, <laughs> I started thinking about it. Well, I would, you know, I would put in 500 books at a time. And, and the reason why I say 500 books at a time is because I think you could create a robust collection um, of literature that spans the centuries, but gives people opportunity to like really become well-read and really explore and really sort of think about who they are and who they might become, but know the whole collection. You know, I feel like 500 was just a nice number. And it also happened to be the number of books that Sir Walter Raleigh had access to when he was locked up in the Tower of London and when he would write a history of the world. So I was thinking if he could write a history of the world with 500 books, um, you, could, you could understand your whole world and your whole life with 500 books. And so we said I would do it that way. And then over the course of a year, I kept having these conversations with the Mellon Foundation and then they ended up um, funding me. And and then it took off. And, and and the first step was to figure out, OK, well, what will these these libraries look like? And I'll show you, actually. So it's modular. Right. And what happens is then you you put them together and each of these holds about one hundred twenty to one hundred and eighty books. And it, it, it does two things. The actual ones are made out of out of maple or walnut or cherry or oak. And what it does is it just adds something beautiful to the space. But because you can access the books on both sides, you create a center where people come and congregate together and they have conversations where all of a sudden you can see who the readers are. Because usually the readers just 
they live in their cells and they come out, but you don't know how much they love to read because they go into the library or they ordering books for themselves. But now you got the dude that spends all his time on the weight yard picking up Walter Mosley and having a conversation with the dude who spends all his time at the poker table. And, and now they're in community in a way that they might not have been at first. And you got the ball player who sees his homie reading and it's like, yo, you like books? And now you might create an opportunity for the, the, the sort of literacy programs to actually matter. What is it like when you, do you just like call a prison? You're like, hey, you know what? Books, I'm bringing books. How do I, <laughs> yeah, like what kind yeah. of pushback do you get from prisons? Is Was it, was the first two the hardest? And then once you had a proof point, you're like, oh no, no, we already did this in these two. Then it was like easy because um, they'd seen that it could happen. And I say this because you you started with this idea that books were contraband in so many places. Yeah. So first I, I gave a presentation. I said, if I'm going to build this organization, first, I need to think about who gives me respectability. Like who walks into the room before me or who, when you see that name associated with me, you say, okay, I, I trust this kid. And so I had um, Commissioner Scott Simple, who was the former commissioner of the Connecticut Department of Corrections. I put him on my advisory board. Dr. Ruthie Gilmore is on my advisory board. And a whole range of folks. They, they cover the spectrum of, of the kind of work that I want to do and people I admire and people who support me. So I did that. Um, but then he introduced me to some folks. And I ended up being a keynote speaker at a conference for correctional executives. And, and so I presented the project to them. And it was... Um, the commissioner of the DOC in Massachusetts and the commissioner of the DOC in Louisiana who heard me speak and was like, yo, we want this. And I, I was fortunate though, because the pandemic created this um, environment where wardens and DOC officials were suddenly like on Zoom. So I didn't have to fly to Louisiana. I was able to get on Zoom with the commissioner and with three different wardens. And then I just talked to him about the program. And, and I honestly, the first two were the hardest, mainly because they don't build things in prisons to put in housing units. You know, you go into a prison, a housing unit has a, a, like a, a steel table with, you know, steel um, stools attached to it or plastic chairs. So I'm sort of suggesting that they should put hardwood in prison. And we had to talk about everything in terms of how to make sure that um, it was safe, how to make sure that it couldn't get broken down and, and turned into weapons. Um, you know, Prison Rape Elimination Act was one of the things that governed how high they would be. So each one of our modules is 44 inches high so that it doesn't disrupt the site, the sight lines. So we had to have all of these conversations that were security side conversations um, while also um, <laughs> getting them to send us pictures of what the space on the inside looks like. You know, hey, can you send me the inside of that housing unit? And you got to imagine what, what, a, what a warden is thinking like. No, I'm not sending you pictures of the inside of the housing unit. But once you get a, a couple of people to do it, um, you know, it's, it's surprisingly easy. I mean, I've had wardens say, you know, Dwayne, I was skeptical about this at first, but um, let me show you something. And they take me to the housing unit where the Freedom Library is. This is particularly in Colorado. And um, and he takes me to where the Freedom Library is. And man, the space is radically different. I mean, these guys is coming up to me. You see him looking at the books. Uh, they just telling me how much they appreciated it. But then he takes me to another housing unit. So I walked in this housing unit and I felt like I was doing a bid again. I mean, it was like dank. It was it was eerily quiet, you know, and I felt like I was intruding into the guy's space. 
And and I felt like I had I had a fedora on, and so they were looking at me like I was crazy because they was like, "How this dude got on a, a black t-shirt and a fedora, and why is he with the warden?" You know. And so I started talking to him, and um, and they could see the Freedom Library in the other unit from their unit. You know, they could see these shelves, and I told them who I was and what I was doing, and then we started going back and forth. And I was like, you know, it's hard to get books about Black history in here. You got Black history books in the shelf. And I was like, yeah. I was like, and we got you know books in Spanish. We got poetry. You could get the Iliad, you know, we got a lot of um, genre fiction. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a robust collection that um, I think, you know, is, is, is basically a canon to make you understand the world better and more deeply and more profoundly. And I talked about the fact that we use reclaimed wood and reclaimed wood is, um, is like wood that's, that's like a, if a tree fell down um, on, on a street and they would usually like throw it away, work with an organization that takes the wood and transforms it and, and uses it to make furniture. And we make the freedom libraries out of it. But the wood, you can see the scars in it. It might've got struck by lightning and you see you see the mark in it. And I was telling them that, you know, we use wood like this because it has character. And, and it's like a lot of us, you know, people think that we scarred and we irredeemable, but sometimes the way we've suffered and the way uh, we've had to reckon with how we hurt others make us, make us beautiful in a eerie kind of meaningful and needed way. Man, this cat comes up to me and just got his hand out. And shake, shake my hand. And he's like, oh, thank you, you know, for seeing me, for seeing us, for coming. And we leave and the warden is telling me, you know, this dude was on death row for 25 years. And a and point, I guess, that I'm trying to make is that so far, wardens, staffs, commissioners have appreciated the possibilities that these books hold. And in fact, we put a freedom library in, in some staff area as well. So we don't just bring it for the dudes inside. We bring it for the people who work inside as well. Because when we're trying to build this, this community and these conversations, we believe that the conversations have to have to go back and forth between everybody that walks through those doors. How do you choose the books? I have to imagine that there are some books you want to make the 500 and they don't make the 500. There's some that when you built this, you were like, now these will have yeah. to be everybody's first 10 because like these are the books that, you know, I say I just read Sula. Um, I'd read all of Morrison except for Sula. And I just read it the other day. I was like, Whew, I waited a long time. And uh, I want to reread Parable of the Sower, which like, you know, I remember reading it before I was a good reader. I, I was like an OK reader when I read it. But now I'm like, I'm an adult now. I want to like reread Octavia. That's fine. I'm about to reread Parable of the Sower too. And, and and actually, this is a thing about privilege. You know, my kid is in the ninth grade and uh, and they're reading that as the book for class. And, uh, and Sula. Whoa. Yeah, man. I'm like, what? And Sula, uh, Marlon James loves Sula. And he talks about this line when it says, um, like somebody says to, to, to one of the women, like, who gives you, who gave you permission to be like that? And she says, permission. You know, and he talks about it. It's just like this beautiful moment. And I actually, you know, when I talk about books to people, I'm like, how do you become a reader in which you recognize that, that, that you could carry around a moment with you and a moment could like radically transform your possibilities? Because it's a question of like permission. What do you mean who gave me permission to be who I am? You know, and so many of us have, have lived like for me. I mean, I'm convict, 16 years old in prison. I'm supposed to die in here. I'm supposed to be nothing. You know, and, and so if, if a line like that is something that I could see my younger self living by. But what's your line? Is there a, lot, a book, a line from a book? Yes, I, I have brave. I have brave for want of wild beasts, steel cages. Um, and it's a line from a Joseph Brodsky poem. And it's, and it's another one, actually, too, is from this book called Train Whistle Guitar. And this is a bit of a story. It's this like this woman. She was um, you know, she married this dude and, and she was really religious. And everybody in the community knew that the dude was cheating on her. Right. 
And um, and and, and what happens is um, she catches him in the act one day, and she had never believed in it. She catches him and she snaps and she kills both of them, right? And the narrator says, "What she didn't understand is that um, being human, she had to suffer like everybody else." And and I always carried that around with me because I, I I thought, man, I thought that like, woe is me and the world has done me wrong some kind of way. And which is kind of foolish because I was in prison for something that I did. But it's really easy to think that somehow your suffering makes you unique and it gives you permission to hurt other people. So that line always stuck with me. And it's one more from Sent for You Yesterday by John Edgar Wyman. And it's a line that says, don't fall asleep in your enemy's dream. And, and a lot of times, man, we forget that, that that some of the things that we do are like products of what people who hate us believe that we should be in this world, you know. Um, but you asked how I chose the books. I did the same thing we're doing. You know, I, I set up a bunch of like focus groups where I ask people to get on a Zoom with their friends. It's the middle of COVID, right? I'm like, yo, you can't go to no bar. Y'all can't even go hang out at each other's house. Jump on a Zoom. And all I want y'all to do is talk about the books you love. And folks would do that, man, it would just be like lovely. I mean, people would like talk about these books and I would hear what they said and I would take what they said as like the way that I got hip to a book. So I remember Wesley Morris said about um, Angels in America, which I had never read, right? He said, I could read that book every day for the rest of my life and never feel like I've gotten to the bottom of it. It's one of the most inspirational things I've ever read. It is one of the great attempts to reckon with a moment in American life. But by wrestling with that American moment, you must reckon with the centuries that lead up to it and help produce it. There's such a wisdom in its anger. How you can take ideas and wrestle with them in a melodrama is really hard to do. And so this does it and it's great. And this is like something that he said just off the cuff to a couple of his friends. And then I pick up Angels in America and I read it and it's a play by Kushner and it's about the AIDS crisis in America and it's published in 1995 and it literally fucks me up because I got locked up in 1996 and I didn't know that this book existed until 2021. And, and I thought to myself, like, how can I create a world in which the books that really, really matter that have radically touched people's lives exist in a cell? Because at the end of the day, you can't have a civilization without a library. You know, it's a reason why people talk about culture and literature, whether you're talking about the oral tradition or the written tradition, as one of the things that marks us as moving into a place of of civilization. And in a lot of prisons, they just don't have that possibility. And so I did these focus groups. Um, I did a survey where I got a bunch of people saying books they loved. I had a bunch of RAs to do reviews of books. I did one-on-one interviews with a bunch of writers I love and respect. And I started with the books that I couldn't let go. And then I started adding them, adding them, adding them, pruning them, pruning them, pruning them. And then sometimes a book comes out like Honoré Jeffers, um, the love songs of W.E.B. Du Bois. It comes out in hardback first. Her publisher gives me a bunch of copies and paperback, a bunch of the galleys. I send it to a bunch of dudes in prison. They read it. It's great. Like they were the first readers of her book in a real way. But then the book comes out. I read it. I love it. But oh, it's in hardback. So we can't put it in the Freedom Library. But then it comes in paperback. And so something gets pushed off because the Freedom Library is sort of like a river. You know, it's going to be some constants that's always there. But as great things come up, as I'm reminded of great things that I hadn't thought of, it changes and shifts a bit. And it's like a river. You know, you're in the same river, but you can never step in the same spot in the river twice. I love that. I got to see one of these Freedom Libraries. For me, it was, um, did you read The Giver? Yeah, um, Lowry. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I read it in seventh grade, and I'll never forget the moment where um, Jonas sees color for the first time. 
And it just like, it like changed my whole life. I like had never even thought about a world where there wasn't color. And then he yeah. sees it and I'm like, what? And it like, it was the book that um, made me, I didn't know, I didn't know books could do that until, until Lois Lowry. So that was my book. Don't, I mean, don't you think that, you know, man, there's so many people who, who, who live their whole lives and never get one of those moments. And, and because, you know, literacy challenges are real. That's why we bring writers in. Because you could get that moment just by hearing somebody read that part of the story. I mean, at 16, you know, growing up in PG County, I didn't think you could be no cool writer. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like, but writers are like the coolest people on the planet, right? But imagine that, you know, you're a 16-year-old Black boy and, and, and you literally think that, that you cannot be cool and literate. Like, not, not that I love books, but I literally do not think that, like, you know, Terrence Hayes existed or, or, or Marlon James existed or, or like Nikki Giovanni, like, like that she was like, that she was somebody who would walk into a room and like everybody pauses, right? And, and so what happens is we, we bring writers in so that, so that even if somebody um, is struggling to read, uh, we bring writers in so that those writers can read and talk and communicate with the folks inside and get them an opportunity to have the same kind of moment you had with the giver but um, have it as a product of the oral tradition, which then might push them to be like, you know what? I could read that book. Because quiet is kept. When people lack literacy, it's not like they lack an understanding of the story. You know, they just they just lack a, a, a ability to decipher the characters on a page. But once they realize that story is story, I think it like knocks down one of the barriers to access, you know, because you, you, think, you think that like the Iliad or, or the Odyssey it's different from your your uncle talking about last weekend. That didn't, you know. So, I get that. What what's next with Freedom Reads? The organization is split into three parts. You got the Freedom Library, and you have Freedom Talks, and you have um, Freedom Acts. And so, our goal is to build fifty libraries in prisons before the end of this year. We put in, we put Freedom Libraries in Angola, and MCI Norfolk, and so you got. Louisiana, Massachusetts, New York. We got um, Illinois. We we building a, a number of libraries in Connecticut soon. Um, so that's one aspect. And the Freedom Talks, we'll keep sending writers in. I, I turned my last book, Felon, into a solo show. I performed it in about 10 prisons so far. I'll keep going into prisons across the country. That's kind of like a part of the vanguard that's reminding writers that part of our duty is to show up in places where writers didn't show up. You know, when I was inside, I never seen a writer come in and read and remind me of um, what was possible. So we'll keep doing that. And then because I am a lawyer and I got friends that's in prison, I started representing people on clemency um, and on parole. And I've, I've been fortunate to get, you know, friends out, you know, people that I was in with 1996, 1997. I've gotten about five people out of prison. And so um, I folded that into the organization as well, because I, I do think it's important to remember that if, if reading is an um, emancipatory act, you know, we say freedom begins with a book. I mean, if that's true, then we also got to push to make that happen like in the world. And so even though that's just a, a 5% of what the work that we do, and frequently I'm pulling together a team of, of volunteers and supporters to do that work, um, I think it has a, a a special place in my heart because, I mean, if you, you know, if you ever talk to somebody that had life in prison and then they home, I mean, it, it's, it's nothing, it's nothing like that. So, um, so we do that as well. And so we'll keep doing it, you know, we'll keep doing it and, and keep building libraries and prisons and, and and asking folks like you to come in. You should come through with me one time and 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 one see the library and see what it looks like. Um and it's at 
it's in, it's in the National Building Museum. We got an exhibit up at the National Building Museum that you'd actually see one there. But to see one in a prison, I think is it is special because it reminds you that if Brian Stevenson says part of the work is to be proximate, when you go inside and, and you see this Freedom Library there and you talk to folks there, you remember that um, a lot of us aren't proximate enough to that particular uh, tragedy. And that's why we haven't changed it to the degree that we might. I would love to go see. Uh, I, I did a six hour tour of Angola. Uh, and that is a place that desperately needs more of everything and a whole lot less people uh, in it. Um, so there are a couple questions that we ask everybody, uh, but before I get to those two, can you tell us how people stay in touch with your work? Is there a site people should go to? Should they follow you on Instagram or Twitter or Facebook? How do people stay in touch with you? Yeah, they should definitely, they should check out um, Freedom Reads, F-R-E-E-D-O-M-R-E-A-D-S dot O-R-G. Uh, you can find out, you know, you can sign up for our, our quarterly newsletter, get all of the information about the work that we're doing. You can follow me on Twitter and Facebook at, at Dwayne Betts. And, um, and then if you go to the website, you can follow Freedom Reads on Twitter and on Instagram um, as well. So two questions everybody gets. The first is, uh, what's a piece of advice that you've gotten over the years that stuck with you? Mm. Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> so, <laughs> oh man, this brother was, uh, I come out of prison and I tell myself that um, I'm not going to tell anybody that I've been to prison. And, and man, I just couldn't escape it, <laughs> you know, like. I went to University of Maryland. I came home in March. I went to University of Maryland in April and tried to enroll. I didn't know what the word semester went. So I go to talk to the counselor. I'm like, y'all want to start college? He's like, well, the semester already started. And I just act like I don't hear him because I don't know what the word semester means. And he's like, well, we already chose the class of such and such. And again, I went to prison at 16. So I didn't even understand what he meant by like the class of such and such. Right. And then he looks at me. He's like, yo, something. Right. And, and, And what he said was like, are you hearing me? And I was like, look, man, I just got out of prison. I don't know what a semester is. I don't know what a class is. I just know that I told my mom I was going to get a degree and that's where I'm here. And he said, uh, well, look, man, we already made our decisions for who's going to be enrolled for next year. So if you don't want to wait an extra year, you should go to community college. And I was like, huh? And he's like, you know, go to the two-year school, PG Community College. So I go there. And I had to take this test. I tested in the honors English. I had to get signed off on it. I was all excited, like, yeah, I'm still smart. I go to get signed off on it. And the woman was like, you must be pretty smart, but you're kind of old to just be starting school. Why are you just starting? It's like, look, I just got out of prison, you know? And, and so then I was like, I'm never going to tell anybody else. And then I was in this African-American studies class. And somebody said something. They was talking about all of these cliche stereotypes about men in prison. And um, I was like, man, you don't know what you're talking about. And the kid was like, what you talking? What you know? You know, and I'm like, man, I just did nine years. And I'm telling you, you have no clue about what you're saying. And the professor say, uh, all right, class, that's enough. And then he say, uh, Mr. Betts, can you stay after class for a moment? I'm like, oh, man. So it's Dr. Corey Haynes, man, a tall, slim black cat with a bald head, always wore a gray suit. Stay after class and walk up to him. He says, is it true that you, you know, you just got out of prison? I say, yeah. He said, you know, I did two years, man. And then I went to community college and I went to Howard. He said, you can make it. And uh, man, it changed, you know, changed my life in a real way. And then years later, not, not about a year and a half later, we were talking and he said, uh, Dwayne, look, you know, you could talk about prison for the rest of your life. You ain't got to be afraid. You know, you could talk about prison for the rest of your life and actually do some, some good for the world and probably build a life for yourself too. And, and I was, I was like, at the time I felt like, you know, 
to to tell somebody was to was to reveal this 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 stigma that that was going to predict everything they believed about you. Um, but but when he told me that, that was good. And he went to Oxford. So when you graduate, you know, he got the regalia from Oxford. This dude looks like he fresh out of Harry Potter. You know, he's like the bossest of the wizards, you know, and everybody knew. And I don't know if the other people knew like the part of his story that I knew, but I would look at him and how everybody there looked at him and just be like, man, if he could do it. So so that's, uh, that's the advice, man, that I stayed with. And the last question is, uh, there are a lot of people who read your book, read my book, believe in these programs, protested, called, emailed, testified, and they would say they did all this work and the world is still the same it was when we started. What do you say to the people who are losing hope or the people who've lost hope but have tried to do something? I would say, um, you know, we chose the ARC in some ways. I was working with some architects at Mass Design, and, and we chose the ARC in some ways because you know, we were thinking about Martin Luther King's quote, you know, the arc of the universe is long, but it bends toward justice. And I think sometimes people could, could say that, like, that doesn't inspire them um, and, and, and that doesn't settle the despair that they feel. But I would say that, you know, even as we accumulate losses, we also accumulate victories. And I would say that um, this poet Martina Sparta has the line that says, um, Vivas to those who have failed. And it comes from a Whitman line, a line from Lisa Grass. And we, we tend to think that like the only thing that matters is success. I, I think it's real value, man, and just struggling. It's real value in, in getting up, doing it again and again. Because I, I think that, you know, who I am is possible because of the failures of a lot of folks who did time in prison and came home and wanted to be somebody and couldn't. You know, it's, it's, it's possible because there's a lot of people who tried to enroll in college and got rejected because of their criminal convictions. Um, and so I like to remember that it is hard and, and we might accumulate losses, but but even those losses matter because those losses become a part of the narrative that the people who will keep pushing and, and find and build a better, more humane and just society, those losses will be a part of the narrative that keeps those folks going. I learned a ton in this conversation. It is an honor to finally get to talk to you uh, about your work. And I can't wait to visit one of the Freedom Reads uh, libraries if we consider you a friend of the pod and can't wait to have you back. Thanks, man. Thanks for having me. I've been listening to the podcast for a long time. You know, Clint, my man. <laughs> so, um, so you know, we kind of go way back and, uh, you know, different folks that have been around. Yeah, you know, watch your work, man. And it's the other thing about it is sometimes we think that uh, we exist in a space that's so um, disconnected. And, and a moment like this reminds me that that we are connected um, by the work, by the mission, by the drive. Um, so I appreciate it. I'm happy to be in the pod. And uh, thank you. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for tuning into Pod Save the People this week. Tell your friends to check it out. Make sure to rate it wherever you get your podcast, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And we will see you next week. Pod Save the People is a production of Crooked Media. It's produced by AJ Moultre and mixed by Veronica Simonetti and executive produced by me. Special thanks to our weekly contributors, Kai Henderson, D.R. Ballinger, and Miles Johnson.